0: So, yeah, we're continuing on in our, uh, our, our By Faith series. Last week, we talked about Abel and uh, that his faith, faith was about worship, that he showed us how to walk in worship in our faith. He worshiped God. He didn't have to be told to do it. He was really a great example of what it looks t- like to have a heart for God, a relationship with God. Okay, And, and we, we arrived at uh, starting with Abel because, Abel because of Hebrews chapter 11. Okay? And um, next in the line in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 is Enoch. Okay, So today we're going to be talking about Enoch. And we're going to be reading um, Two passages of scripture today, um, and they're both very short because there's just not much mentioned in scripture about Enoch himself, okay? So if you'll read with me, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 5. If you want to open your um, version apps, you can find um, this on there as well, but it'll be on the screen if you just want to read along. So Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. So that's all we have of Enoch from the Genesis account. And then the next time he's mentioned is in Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6 in our church history. So, if you guys will just indulge me for like a, just five minutes, okay? I would love to give some historical background on Enoch and kind of how like scripture came about a little bit, okay? So, one really important thing that I want to mention is something called the intertestamental period. Okay, that's the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament where there's nothing mentioned. There's about 400 years of history there that's not mentioned after Malachi and before the book of Matthew. Okay, so during that time, um, we end in Malachi under Persian rule. The Persian Empire uh, was was ruling the whole pretty much ancient world at that point. And uh, the Jewish people were under Persian occupation and they had a lot of religious freedom. And so they were still able to worship. They still had the temple. They were still able to practice as normal. And then what happens after that is in about 338 BC, Alexander the Great takes over the world. He takes over the ancient world. And this is the Greek empire. And Alexander the Great's empire was not so keen on other religions having freedom. So there was... um, there was a lot of religious oppression that began for the Jewish people. And uh, under the Greeks, they also forced everyone to learn Greek, which is why the New Testament is written in Greek. Okay? The whole ancient world was forced to learn Greek. So um, as the Jews kind of went underground, they wanted to make sure that scriptures were kept were kept alive. And so they would rewrite the Hebrew scriptures in Greek. And so we have a ton of Old Testament manuscripts in the books of the law, the Torah, everything in Greek manuscripts. So that's one of the reasons that we have Greek there. But okay, so the Greek empire is ruling the day, right? And uh, Alexander eventually dies, control of the region, changes hands several times. And then there's this, uh, there's this, uh, Maccabean revolt that takes place. Maybe you've heard of the story of Hanukkah. Anybody heard the story of Hanukkah and the menorah and the oil, like it would last seven days? Okay. That story came out of the Maccabean revolt Okay, because the Maccabeans were, were uh, rebelling against the Greek occupation. Okay? So after that, in 63 BC, uh, Pompey of Rome uh, conquers that region. Okay? And then after that, we know the Caesars take over, and then Rome kind of rules the ancient world. Well, at that time, the temple is disgraced pretty horrendously. Um, and so the Jewish people are even further pressed into oppression. So what's interesting about this time, and I know this is a rabbit trail, but I think it's important for us to get. Okay? What's interesting about this time is that it's setting the stage for something. It's setting the this stage, this, this his, these historical moments are a stage being set for Jesus. Okay, the Jewish people, they have been operating under the Mosaic law and then when the Pharisees are kind of taken over, they've kind of created their own law system a bit and they hold that in higher regard even than the Mosaic law, the, the law that was given to Moses. And so they're practicing that and is it working for them? No, it's not working for them. They're still under horrendous oppression. And so it was during those 400 years of oppression that they started to talk again about the Messiah, the promised one who would come and save them. It was during that 400 years that that really started coming about again. And they started really like talking about that to each other and and putting their hope in that Messiah. Well, at the same time, the pagans in that region, the Gentiles, those who didn't believe in God, or they had a polytheistic religion, worshipped many gods, that wasn't working for them either. Under all these different occupations and oppression, they were oppressed as well. And their gods weren't doing it either. So the world was primed for something new. The world was primed for hope. And one of the amazing things that the Romans did is they built a roads system. And so for the first time, the ancient world was connected pretty easily. What would have taken months to traverse now took maybe a week because roads were built. So that meant that information could get out faster. And so the stage was set for the Messiah, for Jesus to come. Now, what does this have to do with Enoch? During that 400 years of oppression, um, the Israelites would go into hiding and they would kind of be telling stories. It was an oral tradition, most of them did not read, they didn't write, okay? So it was this oral tradition and they would sit around at dinner and they would tell stories and they would get to passages like Genesis chapter five and they would talk about Enoch. And they'd go, man, I wonder what the deal is with that guy. He He didn't die? He just got taken up to heaven. There's got to be more to that story, right? And so they'd sit around, and the world's maybe first, like, fan fiction came about. And they would start coming up with stories about what, maybe what was Enoch's life like. And we actually have a book called The Book of Enoch. It's not scriptural. It's not part of the can- canon of scripture, right? It's not inspired by God, but it was written by Jews in that time frame to keep hope alive. And to keep their interest going and to tell their kids, hey, whoa, here's another hero of the faith that you maybe don't know about, Enoch. And I think, what if he did this? Or what if he did that? It's a pretty incredible story in it. It talks about like the giants in the, in that, in the early days of the world. And it uh, talks about um, prophecies about the Messiah. And interestingly, one of the prophecies that Enoch gives over and over again is he refers to the Messiah that's to come as the Son of Man. Now, Jesus himself refers to himself as the Son of Man. And um, a lot of times that's attributed to Daniel chapter 7, and and that verse just says that um, one like the Son of Man will come. And so that's kind of loose. And so people kind of poke holes in that and say, like, I don't know if that's really Daniel. Well, Jesus, I believe, wholeheartedly was quoting the book of Enoch because people knew it so well at the time. It was like us quoting The Office or quoting one of our favorite shows. It's, it's really the same thing. It was just pop culture at that time. They were quoting the book of Enoch. The book of Jude in the New Testament refers to the book of Enoch. Okay? So Enoch was not just these two little paragraphs, right? He was this hero of their faith that they had created stories around to keep them going, to give them hope, to continue their walk of faith to keep them walking forward with momentum. And that is what I really want to hone in on today, that we are called today, just as we always have been, to walk by faith. We are called to walk by faith. You know, last week, Abel showed us where our faith was meant to begin, in a heart of worship. This week, Enoch shows us what a life of faith is should look like, and that is walking with God. Walking with God. We often refer to our faith as a walk. Maybe you've been asked before, how's your walk going? Right, And that just means, how is your relationship with God? Are you hearing from him? Are you responding to him? Are you moving forward? What is he saying to you, right? This is what our walk really signifies, And how we walk by faith requires that we understand a couple things, okay? First is that walking is voluntary. Walking is voluntary. Enoch wasn't forced to walk with God. Genesis 5 says that he faithfully walked with God. It was his decision. He faithfully moved forward with God. He put one foot in front of the other. He wasn't forced. He consistently, steadily moved where he knew that God was taking him. God doesn't hold a gun to our heads, does he? Would there be any worship there if he did? Worship would be empty. It'd be hollow. It would be fake. It would be false. We would be serving a dictator, not a good king, right? God does not force us to go anywhere. He doesn't puppet us along like a marionette, right? He does not do that. He gave us the ability to choose whether we would walk through this life by his side or not. He gave us that ability. He gave us that choice. Walk with me or not. He desires one, of course, far above the other. But he gives us the choice. Amos chapter 3 says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so. Right? There's got to be this agreement that we are both going in this direction. You know, it says that Enoch walked apart from God for 65 years. So for 65 years, he was not walking with God. But then he works, he makes this decision, right? Well, walking without God isn't working out for me very well, so I'm going to walk with God. And the rest of his 300 days, which is like mind-blowing, right? But the rest of his 300 days, he faithfully walked with God. He made a voluntary choice and never looked back after that. Sometimes it feels like it would be a lot easier if God forced my feet, though, wouldn't it? Doesn't it? There are days where I wished that that was be how it works, and I've prayed that many times. God, would you just take this away from me? Would you make this in me stop? Would you give me what I need to go there? Would you, like, force me? Would you just come come over my person and just, like, force me to do what I know I need to do? I've prayed that many times. And it does seem like maybe it would be easier. But again, there's no relationship in that, is there? There's no trust in God. It's just, I give up. Here, God do whatever you want. I don't care anymore. There's no faith in that. God wants to empower us. God wants to lead us, guide us, give us what we need, give us the strength we need to put one foot in front of the other. But if he did it for us, it'd be meaningless and we wouldn't grow. We wouldn't grow. There's no relationship in that. And there is a lot of depth to a decision to walk with God Because it doesn't mean that life gets easier. We all know that. If you've been walking with God for a while, it does not mean that life suddenly gets simpler. There's still intense brokenness and hardship that we experience from this world because the world is broken. The world is hurting. And we're in it. So we're equally as affected by it. But there is a vast difference to facing that brokenness with God and facing it without. We each know that, I hope. Do you know that? Do you understand that? I hope you've experienced that in your life. Because there is. It's a massive, massive difference. I've never regretted walking with him. I've never regretted that choice. It's been hard. It's been real hard at times. But I've never regretted it. I just... I'm grateful. <laughs> I'm grateful through it that I have him and that he chose me and that he wants me, and he holds my hand and walks with me. It deepens that well of gratitude in those seasons of difficulty because there is a hand to hold. So when I asked this morning, have you made a choice to walk with God? Have you made that choice? Are you expecting him to pull you along, to drag you somewhere that you haven't tried to even go? What choice have you made? Have you made a decision? Walking is voluntary. Church, have you made a decision? Maybe today you have in the past, you know that you have made that decision, but maybe you found yourself today on a different path. Maybe you've let go of his hand and maybe you've wandered somewhere where you know you shouldn't be. And you know the voice of the Spirit calling you back, calling you back to that right path. I want you to know you can make that decision today. He's calling you to it. All you have to do is reach out, grab his hand, and you're back on the path. Church, I pray that you don't stay on your own way. I pray that you don't stay on your own route. It's not going to take you where you think it is. I promise you. The only way, the only path that gives us the good that He has for us is His, not ours. We can't expect Him to come to our path. We can't drag Him over to our way, right? We've got to go to Him. My next point is that walking with God takes us where He needs us to go. Walking is voluntary, voluntary, and walking with God takes us where He needs us to go. In order to walk with God, again, we let Him set the direction we're going. Amen? He is the one in charge. He is the navigator. We're just along for the ride. He also gets to set the pace at which we move. The path. The pace. Right? Right? He sets those. He is the one in charge of those things. You know the path that Enoch was uh, was on when God, um, the path that Enoch was on, <laughs> led him to be swept up and taken away before death. Do you think he could have predicted that? Do you think that that was in any way the path that he would have made for himself? There's no way he could have predicted that that is what his life was gonna end with. (laughs) Being taken up into heaven before death. And who knows if it was like Star Trek and he was like standing with his family and all of a sudden like, that's what happens. And they're like, okay, well, whatever just happened there, right? Like who knows what happened? We don't know. We don't know. All we know that's important is that God is the one that took him. And if he wouldn't have been on that path, who knows where his story would have ended up? Who knows where his story would have ended up? This is what surrender looks like. Entrusting the path, the pace to God. We put our trust that he knows what's best. And he'll take us there when it's time. And he'll maybe slow us down when he needs us to. We put our trust in all of it with him. One of the places we really get hung up on in our journey with God, I think, is fork in the road moments, right? Uh, that path that suddenly forks and it's like, well, here's a decision that I have to make and I'm not really sure what in the world I'm supposed to do. And, and sometimes in my life I've experienced where it's very clear which way I'm supposed to go and sometimes it's not so clear. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it's a, a this way is yes, this way is no. It feels like two half open doors maybe. And I'm not sure what to do in those moments, right? And in the past, again, like Jessica and I, we have, we have been at a lot of those forks in the road. We've experienced a lot of those things, several big moves and moving states for ministry, right? And then just like even life moves of having kids or starting a different job or, you know, whatever that comes. It's the big decisions, those forks in the roads that, that uh, get to be difficult at times and... Um, I want to just share a couple of things that uh, Jess and I have learned and I'm not saying that this is exhaustive and I'm not saying that it's, you know, the best way. I don't, I don't know. It works for us though. So a few things that my wife and I have learned about big decisions. First, of course, we pray and we typically fast about it. So we, we start with prayer and fast, seeking God about it. But the first question we ask is, does this require a deeper, deeper trust in God? Does the decision that we're about to make require a deeper trust in God or not? And in my life, typically, the choice that requires a deeper trust is the one he's asking of me. And we we discovered this maybe like the first big move that we had. We moved from North Dakota to California. I've shared that a million times. I'm not going to Share all those details again today, but you know, on the flight, the first flight from North Dakota to California, when we moved out, left our whole family behind just to go check it out. Um, you know, this idea of like what if came into our heads because we were pretty sure it was going to be a no for us. It was scary. You know, we didn't know what, like I thought California was like gangland USA coming from rural North Dakota. And I was a little terrified of where I was gonna end up out there, cause like we didn't have any money and they weren't offering us much either. So like, it's not like we were gonna get a, a, a place that I bought a gun before I came out. and I was like, I don't know if this is, this is the right choice, but, but I asked this question, what if? And it was, okay, well, we know what's gonna happen if we stay. I'm currently at a church right now. I was serving there, and I'll probably continue serving there. Had a job. Our family's here. And I could have pretty well predicted where that path was going to take me. But moving to California, I had zero idea. I knew that it was going to involve moving to a new place and being way out of my comfort zone. I knew that it was going to require a much, much deeper faith in God. And so eventually, Jess and I decided we would rather figure out, we would rather discover what that might look like in our lives than just go the way that we can probably predict pretty easily. Does this decision require a deeper trust in God? Next, um, something that I've learned in my life, and I I know I've talked about before, but I think it's it's vital in decision-making, is something we learn from Jesus' experience in the wilderness. And that is, does this decision, does it feed a worldly desire for significance, safety, or satisfaction? Does this decision feed a worldly desire for significance? Am I moving just because it's going to give me a better name? Is that the reason that I'm doing this? Is this decision only so that others look on me in a better way? Is it a safe decision? Is this decision something where I'm hiding, where I'm pulling everything in? Is it fear-based? Is it me trying to control my circumstances? If it's a decision out of safety, I would caution you. I would caution you to see if that's truly where God is calling you. And is it about satisfaction? Are you going just because there's a raise? Are you going because it means a bigger house and your creature comforts are going to be met in a different way? You're going to be able to keep up with the Joneses a little better. Each one of those things is absolute poison to a follower of Jesus. I need you to hear that. And I cannot understate that. A pursuit of worldly significance, of worldly safety, of worldly satisfaction is nothing but poison to your walk with God. Do you hear me, church? If there was one thing for you to take away, I hope it would be that even, if you've never taken that away from this church before. Do not give in to those things. I've seen it destroy far too many people. Far too many people. Significant safety, satisfaction. Jesus had to abandon those in the wilderness before he started his ministry. Do you think we're any different? No. Absolutely not. Lastly, does this decision result in godly peace? Does this decision result in godly peace? That's the question that Jess and I always ask each other right before we're going to maybe decide on one of these big decisions, and that is, do you have peace about it? Yes? Do you have peace about it? Yes. That's the only way that we move forward. And I need you to hear that godly peace is not worldly peace. Worldly peace usually feeds into significant safety or satisfaction. Yeah, I feel good about that. Yeah, I think that's a good decision. I feel, you know, I'm not, yeah. It sates, is it sating some desire in you? That's not peace. That's not peace. That's not godly peace. Godly peace is a peace that surpasses understanding. It's not something that should click and make sense easily. It's something where you go, I don't know what is going to happen But I trust God and I know that He wants me to do this. That is a by faith decision. Godly peace requires faith, requires trust. So maybe if you're at one of those forks in the road today, I would just challenge you to ask those questions Does this decision require a deeper trust in God? Does it feed a worldly desire for significance, safety, or satisfaction? Does this decision result in godly peace? If the answer is no to that last one in particular, I I just can't encourage you enough to maybe not do that right now. Think about it. Pray about it a little longer. Pray and fast. Make sure. God's path will always take us deeper into the call he has on our life. Always. He is never going to call us backwards. He's never going to do that. His path always, always is a forward momentum thing. It's moving forward with him. It's seeing what more he has in store for us. You know, um, one of the other real difficult things about making a decision like that is other people's opinions. And those tend to sway us a lot. And every time we've made a big move, we've had a lot of close friends call us crazy and maybe have a chip on their shoulder about the fact that we've made that decision. And it's hard. It's really hard. And it's sometimes it's enough to like make you question, like, maybe this isn't the best idea. If these people that I love, like... If they are upset at me, if they're mad at me because I'm doing this, maybe, maybe I should maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Are we called to please others? Church, are we called to please others? No. I know that's hard, especially when it's your family, especially when it's friends that you love so much, when it's people that are so important to you, and when you are so important to them. I know how hard that is. I get it. But we are not called to please others. And we are no one's source. Amen? We're called to please God. We're called to show them who he is so that he can be their source. We put our faith in God. That's what pleases him most, right? According to Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith, we will not please God. So I hope that in your decision-making, your daily decision-making, but also those big decisions in your life, that it would require faith because that pleases God. And if you make a decision on your own power, if you try to walk under your own power, it's not just detrimental to you, but it doesn't please God. I don't think he's going to hurl lightning bolts at us but it's not where he wants us to be. It's not where he wants us to be. And church, I believe that you want to please God. I want to please God. Do I always do it? No, I mess up a lot. But I believe in our heart of hearts, we wouldn't be in this room if we didn't want to please God. Amen? The last thing I want to talk about is that it's never too late to start walking. And I love that example of Enoch, that he was 65. You know, and to a 365-year-old person, 65 isn't that old, right? Like, it's not he was still a a young, young buck there. But I think it's an important thing. Like, it's never too late. He was 65 years old. He spent 65 years on this earth doing his own thing, walking his own way before he figured it out. Before he figured out that the best thing for him was to just walk with God, was to join hands in hand, hand in hand with him and move forward on the path that he was taking him. And I want to encourage you, church, if you haven't done it, get moving. And I know, like, there's a temptation at times to say things like, well, someday I'll get to that. I'll figure it out someday. What are you going to miss out on? If you wait till someday, what are you going to miss out on? What miracles are you going to miss out on? The depth of your relationship with God will be shallower the longer you wait. I promise you that. And I don't think you want a shallow relationship with God. Don't you want to know who he is? Don't you want to know what he has for you? Don't you want to know like who God really, really, deeply, truly is? His attributes? what he's called you to, what he sounds like? Don't you want to be completely confident in those fork in the road moments because you know the voice of God above anything else in your life? Don't you want that in your life? I want that in my life. I'm not saying that I'm always there. I'm not saying that I'm there. I have a long way to go. But I know that I know him better this year than I did last year. And I pray to God That I stay on the path so that next year I can know him to a greater depth than I ever before. And the next year, and the next year, and the next year. But the only way I'm gonna discover the true depths of God is to stick with it, is to keep walking, and to not put it off. Church, don't put it off. Don't think that that's okay. Don't think that you'll get to it someday. This world is unpredictable. You don't know when your last day is. Do it now. Do you hear me, church? To finish today, uh, we're going to be taking communion. And so, um, Dell and Vona, I think you guys were going to... So if you can come up and just hold the elements for us on either side. And as we move into communion, I'd like each of us to really just take a moment to consider what it is we need to receive from communion today. Communion offers us the opportunity to remember what Jesus has done for us. You know, he gave his life, giving us salvation, inviting us into hope everlasting, right? Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's what you know you need to receive is that that rebirth in you of understanding of his salvation communion also offers us a fresh start to repent and to turn from anything hindering our relationship with god and with those around us we're called not to take communion if you have bitterness and unforgiveness in you so so communion is relationship healing It heals our relationship with God at times if we need to repent. And it heals our relationship with those around us. Communion also offers us a very important reminder, a vital reminder of our purpose as part of the body of Christ. When we take these elements, we're remembering everything that Jesus has done for us We're taking advantage of that forgiveness in that moment as well, but we're also recommitting and stepping into the purpose that he calls us to as members of his body. When we eat the bread, we think, I am part of your body. I have a role. I have a purpose. When we drink the juice that represents the lifeblood, of all life. We're stepping in to the empowerment that he gives us to be part of his body. Enoch turned towards God at 65 and lived the rest of his life dedicated to Father. Maybe today is a turning point for you. Maybe this moment in communion is a turning point for you. As we take the bread and the juice, we're going to have you, uh, I'm going to start a worship song in a moment. We're going to have you get up, come to the front, and just grab one of the elements. And as you take that bread and juice representing Christ's body, broken for us and his blood shed for us, my prayer is that today would be a turning point in your walk. Maybe you've, if you've stalled out on the path with God or have left it altogether, that today today would mark a turning point in your walk with him. So as I um, get ready to lead a couple songs here for us, I'm not going to direct when you take the elements. I'm going to pray, and then I want you to sit with them, and I want you to take them when you know you're ready. Walk through again, Sit in this moment. Walk through, God, what do you want for me? What do you have in store for me? What are you asking of me? What do I need to be giving to you? What am I stepping into here? Ask those questions, church. The Holy Spirit is moving in this place. He's moving in you, and he's calling you to greater depths of faith. Let this be a turning point in that walk of faith. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your love, Lord. Thank you that uh, you call us into deeper and greater things. Things we never never could have come up with on our own. The fact that we can even come to you for forgiveness, for salvation, for purpose. It's a miracle, Father. It's a miracle what you do. We thank you that Your mercies, your gifts, they're new every single morning. So today we step forward, knowing your mercies are new, knowing we don't have to hide ourselves from you, knowing that we don't have to live in shame and guilt about what we've done or who we've been or what we've been planning on maybe doing. But God, we can be free from all of those things. So as we prepare to take these elements and remember what you've done, Remember what you're inviting us constantly into. I pray that today would be a turning point in our relationship with you, God. God, we love you. We're so grateful for you and all that you do. In your name we pray, amen. So if you wanna stand and come forward and get the elements.